3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to late 30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast, 3CR 855 AM, and it is the 17th of February? Correct. Correct. Okay. And you're here with Rosie and Priya in the studio, and hopefully Inez and Malika on the phone. Good morning. Hi. Yeah. (laughs) Yay, we're all here. Um, How's everybody going today? I am very sleepy this morning, but also very excited for this show because there are such amazing interviews and guests lined up for today. So I'm pumped for that. Incredible. I love it. It's It's also a subscriber drive, I believe. So that's an important thing to mention. Yes. All right. Let me do This is very exciting. We have a breakfast subscriber giveaway. So uh, renew or join up as a new 3CR subscriber this week and go in the running for a hamper created by Living Coco, supporters of community-owned and run media. So Living Coco empower communities in the Pacific Islands through fair, ethical trade, creating indigenous foods, biodynamic cultivations, and cultural health systems. And they create bespoke and organic cacao products from the Samoan Islands. So you can support them and 3CR at the same time. And, of course, you can subscribe to 3CR at uh, by calling 94198377. That's 94198377. Yeah, or you can go online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Yeah, very, uh, you know, it's very important to be a part of our community, keep us going. And, you know, that means... So there's a little bit of a little bit of you informing what we do. Yeah, I mean that it is that it's not just um, a donation; it's being part of the community and it's subscribing so that you can be. Yeah, you get a you get a say in what's going on at 3CR. Um, have your voice heard about what voices are heard? No, not exactly. <laughs> just just get involved. I mean, you can have your voice heard about what voices are heard by you know just going to our Instagram and being like. Can you cover this? <laughs> um, but all right, how about we jump into the rundown for this week? Um, I'll kick it off. So earlier this week, I caught up with writer and comedian Caitlin Blythe to hear more about the lived experiences of people with myalgic encephalomyelitis slash chronic fatigue syndrome during COVID-19. So this follows on from a conversation that I had with Asher Wolf last week about chronic fatigue and, and long COVID. And Caitlin has ME slash CFS and is disabled, and she's been really generous in sharing her lived expertise here. So I encourage listeners to really sit with this interview and think about how we work together to navigate the pandemic without leaving disabled and chronically ill community members behind. Sounds like a great interview, Priya. Then we'll hear an interview I did with Dan Hogan, a working class writer and public school teacher. And they're currently living and working on Darug and Gadigal country. In their spare time, Dan runs a small DIY publisher, Subbed In, and Dan joined us to discuss the religious discrimination bill, the harmful com- consequences of the public discourse on trans and gender diverse people, and why private schools should be abolished. Those both sound like epic interviews, and I'm really excited for those as well, Rosie and Priya. Thank you. 
We'll then be joined by Nasser, who is the Vice President of the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network and co-presenter of Palestine Remembered, Australia's only radio show dedicated to Palestine, which runs Saturday mornings at 9.30am on 3CR. They will be joining us to talk about their case against the Australian government following official comments made in support of Israel last year. And uh, then I will interview Race Rage, a.k.a. Mini Mina, um, is a queer black radical rapper based on Wurundjeri country. They join us today to have a chat about their debut album, Black Medusa. This majestic record uses the mythology of Medusa to explore their living experiences, different parts to healing and finding strength. And it's a soundtrack to share, decolonize, queer and accessible future. I also can't wait for all these interviews. Amazing. And lastly, we'll be joined um, by a registered nurse, Emma, who is the COVID-19 testing coordinator at CoHealth. They manage all the testing operations for CoHealth and played an active role in testing, isolation support and outbreak responses across the northern and western suburbs in um, since the beginning of the pandemic. And they will just be joining us to talk a bit more about testing and the challenges with that and accessibility when it comes to rapid antigen tests. Amazing. What a huge show. And, you know, we we wouldn't have it any other way. But thank you both so much for joining us for the rundown. We're going to jump into some headlines. But uh, first, a community service announcement. Our listeners and my show followers, here we are. Subscribe Drive Week between 14th to 20th February. We invite you to subscribe and be one of our financial supporters. Super easy ways to subscribe or renew your subscription. You can visit our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe, or you can call the station on 94198377. Please subscribe today. $75 and wait. $75 weight and $150 solidarity band or organization. Dear 3CR Radio and Nile Show listeners, you support with the annual subscription guarantees the financial independence of 3CR Radio. We are proud to be owned by the community and managed by the community. Thank you for your support. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast and these are the headlines for Thursday the 17th of February. In headlines this week, the Australian government has been accused of discrimination and, breach- and breaching anti-racism laws due to its failure to criticise alleged human rights violations by Israel towards Palestine. The complaint has been lodged by Australian-Palestinian advocate Nasser Mashni and accepted to proceed by the hu- Australian Human Rights Commission. Mr. Mashney says the government's continued lobbying against the International Criminal Court investigation of Israel's alleged war crimes is one factor that, the court, that causes ongoing distortion of public discourse and subjects Australians of pal- Palestinian heritage to discrimination. The complaint aims to help shift government foreign policy to acknowledge that Israel is an occupying power breaching international law. In other news, the largest industrial action by nurses in almost 10 years is taking place in New South Wales amid growing anger at hospital staffing levels in the face of the Omicron health response. 
Nurses have overwhelmingly voted to walk off the job next Tuesday, with New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet repeatedly dismissing calls for minimum staff-to-patient ratios. Oh, I wonder if that... Go ahead. Maybe that headline was was a little bit out of date, not sure. And finally, Human Rights Watch says the Australian government is holding people in immigration detention for an average of 12 times longer than comparable countries. The average length of detention is currently sitting at 689 days and is the highest on record in the world. Eight people have now spent more than 10 years in Australian immigration detention and 117 people have been detained for longer than five years. Coming back to that headline, though, I think, um, you know, people would have seen across social media and across the news just the massive mobilization of nurses, um, you know, fighting for the staff to patient ratio. And I think it is so important to, you know, support this mobilization. Healthcare workers have been at the front lines of the COVID pandemic. And, you know, across the interviews that we've done over the past, uh, you know, past few months, past few years, we've spoken to healthcare workers and union representatives about the fact that, you know, burnout is incredibly high. Working conditions are abysmal. And, um, you know, both workers and patients are suffering because of this. So all solidarity with nurses that have been striking. And finally, um, we also wanted to raise that the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Western Australia has ruled in favour of Nyamal man Terence Flowers in relation to a defamation claim against Channel 7. And this was reported yesterday by NITV News. And... Um, Lawyers for Mr. Flowers have said he's very happy with the settlement and is looking forward to getting on with his life after, uh, on the 3rd of November last year, Channel 7 wrongly identified Mr. Flowers as the abductor of four-year-old Cleo Smith in television and online reports in an appalling, um, you know, an appalling mistake to make um, and something that really affected his quality of life. You know, you know, the level of coverage that Cleo Smith's abduction was getting and to identify an Aboriginal man um, wrongly as the or as, as the um, perpetrator of of this event, I think, was just horrendous. And, I, you know, all the best to him in uh, in his life going forward from this, because I can only imagine the stress that he and his family have had to go through. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. So that's all of our headlines uh, for this Thursday, the 17th of February. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Brothers, 
And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And just before we go into our first interview for the day, I'm once again going to plug our subscriber drive. And that beautiful little community service announcement that you heard before was from Aziza with The Nile Show, which airs on Tuesdays from 7.30 to 8.30 p.m. And a reminder that 3CR, you know, if you're just listening to the breakfast shows, I think you should really check out the website 3cr.org.au for the massive amount of incredible programs that we have on the grid, especially community language programs like the Nile Show. Um, so again, you can subscribe by calling 94198377. That's 94198377. Or you can go online to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. So now we're going to go into an interview that I did earlier this week with writer and comedian Caitlin Blythe. And Caitlin speaks more about the lived experiences of people with myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue syndrome during COVID-19. And Caitlin has ME slash CFS and is disabled and has been really generous in sharing her lived expertise here. So encourage listeners to really pay attention to this one. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Priya. Happy to be here. Well, glad to have you um, and really excited to be able to continue the discussion about chronic illness that we started last week with Asher Wolf. So could we begin with you introducing yourself in a bit more detail so that listeners understand your position in, in relation to some of the issues we're going to discuss? Sure. Um, so my name is Caitlin Blythe. I'm living in NARM or so-called Melbourne on Warrenjury land. Um, I'm a writer and performer comedian, podcaster. I'm host of the podcast Just a Spoonful, which um, basically I, ha- I have conversations with other young and dis- uh, chronically ill and or disabled people, um, usually Australians and uh, all creatives. Um, so we talk about our creative work, um, interests, pop culture, and sometimes we talk about disability and chronic illness if we feel like it. And I have myalgic encephalomyelitis as well as a bunch of other illnesses. I think it's important to say that I'm not a science communicator. I'm not a medical or health expert. So th- what I what I mean by that is I'm not trained in those areas because there are people who are and they're much better at like parsing the research that comes out and understanding how that fits into the systems in place. Whereas I'm coming at it as I, I've always been a creative arts person um, who got sick um, and then I've had to educate myself as a patient I am an ME advocate and I'm a disability advocate, so I'm coming more from a lived experience point of view, but I have been working on a book for years about uh, life with chronic illness in Australia. Um, so I am quite well researched. It's just that if, <laughs> if there's like some science that came out two weeks ago, I'm probably not going to be across it. That's the main thing. So I guess maybe we can just start with the basics. What is myalgic encephalomyelitis, which I know is already a big question. It's and, a huge question. <laughs> yeah, and, and what are some of its impacts on, on people who live with this illness? Okay, well, I'll start with my story. So this year is actually my 20th year with ME, um, which is, I believe, China is the anniversary gift. So I'll probably buy myself some plates. Um, that's a joke. Sometimes <laughs> I do jokes. Um uh, it's, so ME is a multi-system disease with no treatment and no cure. Um, it can be fatal. People in Australia have died of it. Uh, it shortens your lifespan. Uh, so I believe it's shortened my lifespan, my life expectancy, I should say, to by 25 years. 
Um, and it can take your quality of life down to the lowest possible. So um, I think mo- I think they say that ME is like in, in a health-related quality of life score. It, it scores lower than you know chronic renal disease, diabetes, lupus, cancer, things like that. Um, so it's 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 actually quite common. Uh, about a quarter of a million Australians have it, and that's information from before COVID. Mm. So we don't really. It could be a lot more now. Um, because COVID is a mass disabling event. Mm-hmm. Um, ME lasts from six months to life. Uh, <laughs> uh, some people get better, most don't. Um, and about a quarter of people just keep getting worse until they die of it quite young. It's really tragic. It's hard to talk about, especially when you have it. Um, something that's important to point out, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about ME. So you might hear me say ME-CFS, which is like ME slash CFS. Um, there's ME and there's CFS. The reason I say slash is because in 2002, I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, which is probably what most people have heard of. Um, and that's, it's a naming issue, but there's also a lot more to it. Um, so chronic fatigue syndrome was... It, the, the condition was renamed in the 80s in America, and it was kind of um, during the time where there was a lot of stigma attached to the condition. It was That's when they started calling it the yuppie flu and saying it was like affluent people who were burned out. That's not actually what the disease is, um, but that might have been where a lot of people last heard of it. Um, it actually was discovered in the UK in the 1940s, uh, and it was named myalgic encephalomyelitis, was identified by a doctor in the hospital, um, and it has been um, classified as a neurological disease by the World Health Organization since the 1970s. So it's um, definitely not yuppie flu, uh, but the reason that there's ME slash CFS is a lot of people have been diagnosed with CFS. It's more of an umbrella term. It's what we call a uh, dustbin diagnosis, mm. where a lot of times doctors will go, we don't know what's wrong with you, but you're sick. So we're just going to say you have CFS, and that means we don't have to help you anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of problems with that. Um, and then ME has more, there's things like the FACUDA criteria, the international consensus criteria. There's a lot more really specific diagnostic criteria um, to tell if someone's got ME, which is a lot more of an it's definitely neurological. So a lot of people who have been diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome might not have ME, but everyone who's got ME would qualify to have CFS. I know we touched on this a bit last week as well, but I was wondering if you wanted to develop a bit of that conversation about the intersection between ME and long COVID when it comes to diagnosis. Sure. Well, the really interesting thing is that... um, a study of people with long COVID found that a lot of them reported post-exertional malaise, which uh, PEM, which is actually unique to ME-CFS. Um, so a lot of people with long COVID would qualify um, to be diagnosed with ME-CFS. Now, you have to have had the symptoms for at least six months um, for for to even consider an ME-CFS diagnosis. So I think I think only now is sort of like, you know, it's been two years and mm. we're, we're seeing um, 
a lot more long haulers. Um, so they can probably start, we'll probably start seeing the diagnoses go up. But like, again, that's coming from a very like lay person's opinion. So I'm not sure where the science is going there, but there's a lot of talk about long COVID as if it's this brand new thing, mm-hmm. um, which has been really enraging and uh, heartbreaking for people with MECFS because we've been here for a long time screaming for help and being um, not just like, it's not just ignorance, but like willfully ignored. Like people do not want to know about MECFS. It's very sad. It'll make you feel sad to hear about it. It's very hard to live with. Um, and there's a lot of stigma around it. And because I, I think because the patients are so disabled and so under-resourced, it's really easy to ignore us. <laughs> because, like, uh, you know, we're too tired to show up at your... Uh, at Parliament House, you know, so, I mean, mm. we still do, but, like, we, we still have protests every year, but, um, yeah, it's not a very sexy disease, so uh, we don't get a lot of attention. Um, it's a lot of similar symptoms to COVID, uh, sore throat, so I, I've had a sore throat pretty much every day since I was, like, 16, mm. um, headaches, body aches, sometimes with ME, you just run a low-grade fever for no reason, uh, loss of speech and mobility, so, like, I'll frequently lose the ability to speak, or, uh, or move, so I'll be completely bit down sometimes. You don't know why, you don't know when it's coming. Uh, and brain fog is a big one, so I get a lot of brain fog, uh, cognitive dysfunction, it makes it very hard to, uh, you know, uh, answer emails or talk to people, things like that. Um, yeah, most people with MECFS can't work, um, so I don't, I, hardly anyone with MECFS can, can work full time. Um, some of us can work part time if we're lucky with like lots of um, lots of help, lots of adjustments. But most people can't work, mm-hmm. uh, and I think we're seeing that with long COVID as well. So it's very frightening because I'm very frightened for all these people catching COVID, finding out that they're not getting better, and then finding out how cold the world is for people with with long term chronic illnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very hopeful that all of this. Re- all of this renewed attention on chronic illness um, is going to mean that things get better. Um, like things like um, making it easier for people with chronic illnesses to access the disability support pension, um, making the disability support pension actually above the disability poverty line would be great. It would be great to be above the poverty line while you're disabled. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, Making, I, I think a really great thing has been like more normalization of telehealth, um, mm. making sure that all telehealth appointments are bulk billed uh, or are able to be bulk billed. Um, that's been a big issue. Um, just like normalizing hybrid events uh, and just video conferencing and everything that a lot of people loudly complained about during, ha- have complained about during the ongoing pandemic has been actually um, the first time that disabled and housebound people have experienced access. So if we could keep things like that going, that would be fantastic. And um, hopefully more research into antiviral vaccinations, just more research will stop, Mm -hmm. uh, would be fantastic. And hopefully some of it benefits people with MECFS. It's probably too late for people like me that have already been sick for, like, decades. Um, but I just don't want to see a new wave 
a new generation of sick people will have to go through what I've been through. Yeah. It's a really difficult time right now for chronically ill people because we've gone back into shielding, into isolating in our homes without any kind of pathway out of that. Um, when everyone was in lockdown, it, it was awful, but it at least felt like we know what we're all fighting for. And then the vaccine came along, and a lot of people seemed to have incorrectly assumed that once you've got the vaccine, you're immune from COVID, you're not going to get that sick, and therefore stop getting tested, just go back to going to large events. Um, so people like me, so I got a flu in year 11. It was the flu that was going around the school. So like pretty much everybody caught it except for me. I never got better. So I've been sick since then and I'm 35. So I've been sick half my life because of a flu that didn't really affect everybody else. And I, I experienced a, like a few years of remission in my early 20s. But then when I was 23, 22, 23, I caught another flu at university. It was going around the university. Um, and I, I experienced a relapse. And so I never got back my pre-22, uh, that little brief moment of um, mild symptoms. I, I've been moderate to severe since then. Mm. I'm very afraid I'll catch COVID and I will experience a huge lowering of quality of life for me that I won't be able to live independently anymore. I won't be able to breathe as well anymore. Um, a very, very high possibility that I'll die. This is what we're all living with, like people who are chronically ill at the moment. And so we're all staying home. We're masking up. We're all triple vaxxed if we can be, like, and we're afraid. And the cognitive dissonance watching our peers go out and party or, like, list, like me, like, listening to my neighbor's party when I haven't left my house in days. Like, something that you experience with chronic illness, like long-term chronic illness, is the grief. You're constantly experiencing grief. And the grief of this pandemic has been intense. Thank you for explaining that in such detail, because I know it's it's really challenging to talk about, but it's also for people that are not chronically ill. Um, I think there's a real lack of understanding about what disabled folks are afraid of. I'm sure some of our listeners would have felt some resonance between what we've discussed and their own experiences as well. So where can people find out a bit more about MECFS advocacy for recognition and supports? And also, where can people hear your podcast? Um, people can hear my podcast anywhere that you get your podcast. Apple, Spotify, it's out there. Um, just a spoonful. Um, and people can find out more about ME advocacy in Australia at Emerge uh, is the peak advocacy body in Australia for MECFS. Um, and Sasha Nimmo is a science communicator with severe ME who runs a website called ME Australia, meaustralia.net, and it is very good about um, summarizing the latest science news and what research is happening. Australia has some really cool ME research happening, um, even though we have, like, the lowest funding. So there's a lot of really passionate 
smart people working on this. And I think if we just gave them more resources, we would see amazing things happen. Amazing. Well, you've shared uh, a lot of your experiences very generously with us, and I hope the listeners don't take that lightly because, you know, there are things that we can do to contribute to a safer and better quality of life for all of us. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and it is just coming up to 7.28 in the morning. You just heard an interview with writer and comedian Caitlin Blythe, who was speaking about the lived experiences of people with myalgic encephalomyelitis slash chronic fatigue syndrome during COVID-19. And Caitlin herself has myalgic encephalomyelitis and CFS and is disabled. And um, again, encourage listeners to really think about what she shared in that interview and to listen back if you didn't catch the whole thing. Yeah, what what an um, important interview and yeah. Uh, thank you to Caitlin for for sharing all that with us. Like it was really it's really good to have these kind of ongoing conversations. Um, following on from Asher Asher and Priya's interview last week, but now we're going to go into an interview that I did with Dan Hogan, a working class writer and public school teacher, and they currently live and work on Darug and Gadigal country. In their spare time, Dan runs a small DIY publisher, Subbed In, and they joined us. Um, to discuss the Religious Discrimination Bill, the harmful consequences of the public discourse on trans and gender diverse people and why private schools should be abolished. And just a note, obviously, the discussion around the Religious Discrimination Bill has been really distressing um, for many people. So if you do feel... Um, like you need to talk to someone, you can contact QLife on 1-800-184-527 or go to qlife.org.au for their web chat and they're available from 3 till midnight. And if you need to speak to someone before then, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. But now we'll go into that conversation with Dan Hogan. Thank you so much for joining me this morning, Dan. First, I wanted to just speak... Um, about the religious discrimination bill that last week was dominating federal politics. Government has, you know, shelved the bill indefinitely and people have been celebrating the bill's quote-unquote defeat. But obviously the conversation around trans students and teachers that that legislation precipitated has been extremely damaging to trans people and queer communities. Um, And so for listeners who didn't follow that bill, could you briefly explain its history and what eventuated last week? Yeah, so... Um, the Religious Discrimination Bill, which was an idea that first, um, I guess, attended the ether through Scott Morrison all the way back in 2018. Um, and the, the basic premise of the bill is to protect people from discrimination on the basis of their religion. Um, but effectively, what that would allow is um, a number of a number of things. Um, Chief of which is it would allow religious schools and other organisations, institutions, businesses to discriminate against LGBTQI plus people um, on the basis of their gender and sexuality. And as the Hindu Council of Australia pointed out as well, um, quite horrifically and ironically, it also does allow, um, a, 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 again, a business institution or organisation that deems itself um, religious to discriminate on the basis of religion. And their, 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 their way was that um, a Hindu person might be working at, um, just, just as an example, a business that might be Catholic or otherwise, and then if this 
um, bill was to get through. They could be forced to convert to Catholicism just to keep their job um, or otherwise be discriminated against or even 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 sacked. Um, so it's been it's been floating around in different iterations since 2018. Um, it came to a crunch this week in its third version, um, and it and quite quite in a quite dis- disgusting way, the the government decided, oh, okay, we've listened to you. Um, we'll put in a provision that says um, schools can't discriminate on the basis of uh, a student's sexuality, but it can discriminate against a student on the basis of their gender. Um, yeah. So many important points in there, um, including that potential for discrimination on the basis of religion. And it's important that you point out there's like healthcare, aged care, disability services, employment service, so many things that are run by, potentially run by religious organisations and even businesses, as you point out, says about so much about how many people are potentially affected. But you also make a point about the normalisation of discrimination and transphobia as as a kind of public conversation. And I was just wondering if you could speak to that and even though the bill has been shelved, how that continues. So what the Religious Discrimination Bill does in terms of normalising prejudice against trans and non-binary people is, I think, um, two-pronged. One, obviously, the bill itself um, legalises that form and practice of transphobia. And then the second thing is the whole way in which this religious discrimination bill from its inception to its current state of being indefinitely shelved has played out. It, it, it sort of basically what it does is it says to the general public that it's okay to debate trans lives, that they're, they're sort of up for grabs, that their human rights are somehow um, fluid or can be changed because of reasons that are transphobic, which is, yeah, it's an a, a, quite an abhorrent state of affairs, I think. Yeah, and I think that that goes back to as well that thing of um, people kind of celebrating the fact that this bill has been shelved as a win when, in fact, you know, um, the the real harms that, that, it, that it has caused and that public conversation has caused don't go away and kind of continue for people, um, as you say. So in the second half of your piece, you write, Um, and I'm quoting, as a non-binary public school teacher and someone who attended public schools as a kid, I'm stirred to think about how the rise of this insidious piece of potential legislation can become a usable argument for the abolition of private schools. And I thought this was such an important point, um, really interesting to come out of, yeah, what is a pretty heinous debate. So could you elaborate on that? And and, and I'll I'll start by sort of circling around what you were saying about how um, the shelving of the bill was celebrated, especially by... Um, the opposition Labor Party as, as, as a win, um, when really when you look at it, the, the bill is on sort of the, the precipice of a federal election campaign, has been shelved indefinitely, which means the discourse around trans lives is, is, is going to remain indefinitely. Um, and, and strangely, also the Labor Party has to, has to remind itself that it's not a win when their version of the bill um, that they would be happy with at the end of the day and what they would count as a win um, means that students who are trans and non-binary won't be discriminated against in the context of a um, private school. However, trans and non-binary staff and teachers would be. So I, I can't see how saying, oh, it's a win because, you know, kids won't be discriminated against, but 
you know, the adults in the same in the same context will be. That's that's the furthest thing from a win, and I think that speaks to um, the, the fact that it just normalises prejudice. You know, and it, and it says to trans and non-binary kids that oh, but once you turn eighteen, the world becomes an even worse place for you. Extending on that, I think what this whole debacle um, is really, I think, just more reason for the abolition of of private schools in so-called Australia. There's not, there's not really, I can't, and I, and I say this in the article, there's, I can't see any reason for them to exist when we know that they entrench inequality. We know now that they're being used politically by both, by both sides, um, to, to play and mess with trans lives for the worst. So what's, what's the point of them? Why, why are we keeping, keeping them around? Um, and you know, that might sound utopian or, or idyllic or, you know, oh yeah, that would be great, but this, that and the other. But the thing is, there are plenty of examples in the world where private schools don't exist. Um, and I point to it in my Overland article, I point to Finland, um, where there are no private schools. Back in the seventies, they had a, um, I guess a national discussion is how you would put it. And they, they came to the conclusion that there's, there's, there's no good reason to keep private schools around. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to today, um, and it's, um, it's no secret that, um, Finland year on year turns in the best educational outcomes in the world. And of course, that comes down to the fact that they have a truly public education system. Um, which isn't to say that there aren't public schools in Finland that are denominational. Um, there are, there absolutely are. It's just what they did was illegalize, um, or prohibit, um, school fees. So you can still have your Catholic school, you can still have your denominational school, but you can't charge fees. So, and what's interesting about that is, is a bunch of things. One, people still get to practice their religion. There's still religious freedom, which is very important. What's interesting though is that um, a lot of those schools uh, disappeared because the culture shifted. Um, people were having their religious needs met outside of um, private schools. And, and also what it sort of came down to was the fact that a lot, there, there was a large contingent of the public who simply paid to go to denominational schools who may be religious, yeah. Their motivations weren't religious. Their motivations were, oh, the, the, you know, the old lie that, oh, my children will get a better education if I pay for it. If, if you pay for education, it's supposed to be better than the, the, the public system. But Finland proves that it's not the case. I was doing some reading um, around private education for this interview, and last year the ABS um, found independent schools are the fastest-growing school sector in Australia. Um, and also last year the Sydney Morning Herald reported that uh, the top 50 private schools across the country are worth $8.5 billion and they make yearly surpluses of between 3 and $30 million at the same time as receiving millions of dollars in state funding. And um, it's honestly hard hard to believe and read these numbers. But there seems to be in, in the like uh, logic or the way that it's talked about in news articles that there's yeah, a neoliberal like narrative around choice and the same logic feels perversely linked to the religious discri- discrimination bill as well and this idea of choice and this choice always coming um, at the cost of marginalised groups of people. So I don't know, if, I was wondering if you wanted to reflect on that and um, yeah, talk a bit more about the Australian context. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and I think, um, as you detailed there, the religious discrimination bill really, really is an, um, an extension of that neoliberal idea of choice and individualism and all the rest of it. Um, even today, there was um, that report from Save Our Schools about mm. private schools, their funding having increased almost five times the rate of funding for public schools in the last decade. Like huge financial discrepancies always comes at the cost of marginalised people. In the case of private schools, it's at the cost of people who can't afford to go to them and uh, public school students who lose out in funding, basically. Um, and in the case of the r- religious discrimination bill, yeah, trans people, disabled people who who um, the the choice or the ability to express this freedom um, and religious freedom ends up it ends up costing them basically. Yeah, exactly right. the The problem is that it's the religious discrimination bill um, has been used to say, oh, but what about choice? You know, choice this, choice that. Um, something that I see come up in these sorts of debates around. Um, private schools and, you know, what, what good are they? You know, they get all this money from the taxpayer. They're overfunded while public schools are left to, to rot, to put it dramatically, is um, defenders of private schools, they always say it. It's like they've all been given the same script, which is, oh, no, no, but we're doing, we're doing you guys a favour, you know, and also we're taxpayers, so we should be able to have the choice to send our kids to a Catholic or independent school um, and it also get government funding at a federal and state level because we're taxpayers too, you know. And if we send them, if we send them to a private school, um, it's not fair that you know your kids get educated on the tax, the taxpayers' dollar, and ours doesn't. So it becomes this this bizarre argument of unfairness and entitlement and choice. Um, but it's a it's a complete um, it's a complete nonsense because again, I point to Finland. As an example, um, which shows that you can have both. You can have the choice to send your kid to a denominational school or to uh, a non-denominational school, um, and they can both be publicly funded. Um, and there's no school fees, and they're both fully funded and equally funded. And you know, there's no disadvantage. It doesn't do. It doesn't entrench further inequalities, and it certainly doesn't create this three-tiered system. The religious choice or the religious freedom sort of acts in some way as a cover for the the ability to choose to go to an elite school that's much better resourced um, than than a public school. Like the choice is to be able to kind of uh, hold on to that power and that privilege. I suppose that seems like the actual choice that's being made. Not oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's it's and you, and you, you hit the nail on the head there. I think Rosie um, by calling it for what it is, which it is, which is a cover. You know, it's a cover. Um, which quite cynically uses the idea of religious freedom and the idea of being free from discrimination on the basis of your religion to prop up all these ruling class ideals around status and power and class and, and, and all the rest of it. Mm. It's, um, it's very ugly. Well, finally, to end on hopefully a more optimistic note, obviously there is nothing that good that can come from this uh, legislation or, or this debate, but I know... You know, you're a New South Wales public school teacher and you were all striking not that many months ago for fair wages and um, around teacher shortages, um, not only to improve your working conditions, but obviously to improve the education that students are receiving in public schools. And I just wanted to ask you, what does a just education system look like to you? 
yeah, um, it's a really good thing to think about, you know, if we could click our fingers and boom, there it was, the best education system, the most ideal education system, um, you know, what could it, what could it look like? Um, it's not enough to say, oh, we're not going to discriminate against trans kids in our school or, you know, uh, trans and non-binary teachers and, and students are welcome here. It's like, oh, cool, you know, that's like the barest minimum. Um, you know, ideally, you know, trans people just get to live their life like everybody else and they don't, they're not um, reduced to political footballs. Like, again, it's not rocket science. Like, if, it, if you look at the public system and go, oh, my gosh, it's, you know, it's disheveled, it doesn't do this, that, and the other, it's... It's, it's it, the first thing you go to is like, oh, well, where's all the money going? And then you look at that and go, well, they're not, they're not even 100% funded. And then you look at um, the local independent school and they're, you know, 205% funded. So it, it's straight away you just go, and then you find out that the independent school um, is taking millions of dollars from the taxpayer every day, to, um, yeah, every day, every year to be overfunded. So it's, again, it's, it's a pretty simple, it's pretty simple mathematics too, like, Oh, well, obviously public schools are having it hard because they have the highest level of need and they're not even 100% funded. Well, that's all we've got time for. But thank you, Dan, so much for joining us. Thanks, Rosie. Hello, I'm Ayan Shirwa, the host of 3CR's Diaspora Blues program. If you're a long-time 3CR listener, what is up? And if you're a new listener, welcome. 3CR is home to 400 volunteers and over 126 programs. Every year, we bring you stories that concern all of us. The workers, the unemployed, folks from all walks of life. And unlike the corporate shills, our funding comes directly from the community. In return, we shine the spotlight on stories about the climate crisis Indigenous communities fight for sovereignty, Palestinian perspectives, and any of the music or art programs 3CR champions. To help your favourite grassroots media stay on air, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419-8377. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast and it's just gone 7.46 in the morning. Um, God, those CSAs are just so beautiful. It's worth subscribing just for them. Um, just before that, you heard an interview I did with Dan Hogan, a working class writer and public school teacher, and we were discussing the religious discrimination bill, the harmful consequences of the public discourse on trans and gender diverse people and why private schools should be abolished. And you can find Dan's piece um, for Overland on on all of that at overland.org.au. And if you are um, wanting to talk to someone, because this conversation may have brought something up for you, you can contact QLife on 1-800-184-184. 527 or go to qlife.org.au from 3 till midnight and then you can also contact Lifeline on 131114. And now I think we're going to go to an interview with Malika. Thanks for that Rosie and yeah completely agree those subscriber drive promos are just absolutely wholesome and wonderful. (laughs) 
We are now jumping into an interview with Nasa Mashmi, who is the Vice President of the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network and co-presenter of Palestine Remembered, Australia's only radio show dedicated to Palestine, which airs Saturday mornings at 9.30am on 3CR. And they join us to talk about their case against the Australian government following official comments made in support of Israel last year. Good morning, Nasser. Thanks for joining us this morning. Oh, good morning, Malika. Thanks for having me on the show. Can I just correct it? Saturday mornings at 9.30 Palestine. Oh, I'm so sorry. sorry. My, my brain is like, Saturday morning. I'll make sure yeah. to say, say that clearly next time. Um, but yeah, I guess we'll just jump into it. In May 2021, during Israel's bombing of Gaza, the Australian government's official comments included advocacy on behalf of Israel to avoid investigation by the International Criminal Court. Such actions by the Australian government are hostile to Australian-Palestinian human rights. Could you share a bit more about the significance of these comments, especially for the Palestinian community? Yeah, yeah, thanks, Malika. It's very important to note that following the uh, massacre of 2021, when Israel bombed Gaza again, uh, continued the ethnic cleansing and expulsion of Palestinians in East Jerusalem. But the language the Australian government used was the language of our occupiers, the Israelis. It wasn't honest language. And international law requires governments to use their position to progress human rights for all of its people equally. Now, um, following that, uh, the escalation in the violence, the ongoing violence in Palestine, um, there was a call for the International Criminal Court to investigate um, the actions of both Israel and the Palestinians. The Palestinians welcomed, the United Nations welcomed the International Criminal Court's investigation. Israel, which is not a signatory to the International Criminal Court, said, no, we're not participating, and reached out to Australia and other life-minded colonial uh, countries and said, we need you, we're asking you to intercede on our behalf at the International Criminal Court to stop the investigation. Now, Australia... Uh, uh, went to the ICC, we are signatories to the ICC, the International Criminal Court, and said the ICC should not be uh, investigating these war crimes, alleged war crimes, by the Palestinians and the Israelis, not because there's no war crime. The Australia's, Australia's contention was that because Palestine wasn't recognised as a state by Australia, the ICC had no jurisdiction. Now, the challenge we've got with that as Palestinians in Australia is that, in the first instance, interceding on the behalf of another country, using their language domestically, creates an environment that is unsafe for uh, Australians of a Palestinian background. And because it's so, so important, language is so important to create safe space for the citizens of any country. Now, the government has violated its obligation under international law to progress the human rights of all ethnic groups in Australia equally. And that's the contention of our case. Yeah, thank you so much for clarifying that in such detail, Nasser. And I guess following on from that, this week, Sydney law firm Birch Grove Legal announced that they would be representing you in a Section 9 Racial Discrimination Act complaint against the Australian government. Could you share a bit more about this case and what it means? Yeah. So, uh, you know, huge thanks to the Birch Grove team and uh, to the lead lawyer there, Mustafa Khair. Uh, the Australian Human Rights Commission has given a green light. Um, so we, we put up a case saying 
I uh, am, uh, as an Australian, feel that my human rights have been um, compromised by the federal government and their language. Um, so the Human Rights Commission uh, initially requested some more uh, information, which we gave to them, and they've accepted that, in fact, we do have a case, that the Australian government doesn't have a case. Um, there is potentially a case that the Australian government has to answer. So that, um, uh, you know, it's a very serious action. Um, requires the Australian government now to defend their position. So um, look, we're, we're looking forward to our day in court, if you will, uh, where we yeah. can explain, you know, we're, we're, I'm going to explain to them the, the realities of being an Australian uh, mm. of Palestinian background living in this colony and the challenges we face. You know, people of colour, minorities, um, we're, we're based on the language that the Australian government uses we get a situation where Palestinian Australians self-censor. Um, we're, we're scared to speak out about the situation in, in Palestine. We're scared to use the term even Palestine. And yeah. if you listen to the Australian government on, on Palestine, you'd have you, you end up believing that the Palestinians are the aggressors rather than yeah. the victims. Yeah, completely. And I guess you kind of started touching on this point, but. There are real ramifications to the Australian government failing to acknowledge Palestine and the state and Israel as an occupying power, given the Palestinian community on this continent. Was there anything else you wanted to share on that point particularly? Um, look, just how important language is. I mean, we know, listeners of 3CR know, you know, Malika, just how important language is. Whether it, language can create inclusion, create safety, creates cohesion. Um, the, the, you know, the manifestation of arguably, I believe, our worst government ever in the language they use has created, you know, division, separateness, otherness, you know, they belittle, whether it's people of colour, our LB, LGBTQI plus communities, you know, language is so important. And for, um, a, a very small community, you know, we, we number something of about 35, 40,000 people in, in, on this continent. Um, we, we have the right to feel safe. My children have the right to feel safe. You know, one of my children was doing a project and one of the teachers, you know, a, a long time ago said, well, you can't really do a project on Palestine because it's not a country. Well, a, a kid shouldn't have to deal with that. You know, I, I dealt with this sort of stuff as a as a, 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 a young employee, you know, somebody telling me that, you know, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm from Cheltenham. And he said, what do you mean? And where are you from? I said, I'm from Melbourne. He said, no, mate, where are you from? I said, I was born here. Mate, where was your dad born? Oh, Palestine. And he said, Pakistan? You know, I mean, this is, you know, I think first week of my, you know, first job out of uni. Um, we're supposed to be able to feel safe. And it's the Australian government's responsibility to create that environment. And it's so important that their language reflects international law. Mm. We need to be calling things as they are, you know, an occupation, an illegal occupation. Mm. Yeah, so true. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, NASA, and kind of sharing that update. And it's definitely a case that I will be keeping an eye on. Um, but for people who would like to follow and support the work you're doing, how can they follow what's going on um, as you kind of progress through this, NASA? Um, so first thing they can do is listen to our show, Palestine Remembered, every Saturday morning at 9.30. Um, you know, subscribe to 3CR, support 3CR, which is really important, of course. We're doing our subscriber drive. And if they want to find out more details, they can go to 
apan.org.au, Australia Palestine Advocacy Network.org.au. Thank you there for the subscriber drive plug as well. <laughs> <laughs> You're a seasoned, seasoned three-year um, presenter. So yeah, thank you again for joining us um, this morning and sharing a bit more about um, ongoing case. But yeah, thank thanks again, Nessa. Thanks so much. And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And that was Malika speaking with Nasser Mashni, uh, who's also uh, a member of the Australian president of the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network and co-presenter of Palestine Remembered, which is Australia's only radio show dedicated to Palestine. And that runs on Saturday mornings at 9.30 a.m. on 3CR 855 a.m. And Nasser joined us to speak about his case against the Australian government following official comments made in support of Israel last year. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and the Naro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is just coming up to 7.59 in the morning. And uh, Inez is going to be taking it away with our next interview. Inez, are you there? Yes, I am here. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much, Priya. Um, so today we are joined by Ray Slade, who is a queer black radical rapper based on Wurundjeri country. And Race Rage, aka Mini Miller, joins us today to have a chat about their debut album, Black Medusa. And this 
Majestic Record uses the mythology of Medusa to explore their living experiences, different paths to healing and finding strength. And it is the soundtrack to a shared, decolonized, queer, accessible future spitting on and rising from the ashes of the systems we burned down together. Thanks so much for joining us here today. How uh, How's your early morning been? Yeah, good day. <laughs> been pretty good. Just woke up and got ready to talk to you guys. <laughs> Wonderful, yeah. Thank you so much for agreeing for an early interview. Um, I'm absolutely floored with how incredible Black Medusa is, and it is just filled with so much passion and really sharp lyricism and smooth harmonies, and I feel like with a production that also completely immerses you into the message of resistance, can we maybe start with why you chose Medusa as the central symbol or lens for this album? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've always been really inspired by, I guess, the mythology of Medusa and the kind of power that she seemed to hold and what mm-hmm. it says about, like, the power of gaze, whether um, kind of, like, the intrusive sort of judgmental gaze on herself from, like, Athena or the supernatural power of her own gaze to kind of transform others. Um, and I've had this fine sink poster on my bathroom wall since I was about 18 that has a picture of Medusa on it with this really amazing quote um, that says, like, beauty must be defined as what we are or the concept itself is our enemy. And that really inspired me to write um, one of my first ever songs um, to kind of pass down wisdom about, like, self-acceptance and subverting, like, beauty standards um, to my younger sibling, which ended up being on this album. Um, it used to be called Black Girl Magic, and now it's called Divine Medusa. I'm sorry, Divine Melanin. <laughs> And yeah. <laughs> it's the motif, motif that I think I've just, like, kind of kept coming back to over the years. Um, like, a couple of new years ago, I had just a really quick experience with someone trying to kind of, like, touch my hair. And, yeah, I wanted to write a song about that. Um, but every time I kind of went to write it, I felt like I was giving too much power to that person. So I decided yeah. to write it from the perspective of, like, a really strong ferocious character of Medusa that kind of had my own experiences. So like a powerful, queer, black, disabled, non-binary Medusa who could subvert any kind of violating experiences by turning other people's gaze and other people's intrusions back on themselves with like the front line and snake protectors. Um, and yeah, that became um, the song Black Medusa, um, which mm-hmm. is the title track of the album. And then I, like the rest of the album kind of about different paths to healing and different paths to kind of seek and preach the power. And I was like, yeah, this works for the whole album. Why not? <laughs> so I figured, why not put it for the whole album? It, it, and then I did a lot of um, imagery around that because I did the, the artwork for the record too. So, yeah, I just thought it really worked. <laughs> yeah, I think um, being able to hold that power within yourself and then also create such a beautiful piece of artwork. And also the album artwork is absolutely stunning as well. Um, yes, yeah, speaking of divine melanin, um, you speak about absorbing white supremacist beauty standards and also how to reject toxic messages and um, also see the gifts passed down from your ancestors as a form of connection with them. And I feel like, all the songs are incredible, but I feel like I really deeply related to that message and also how hard it can be to really practice the unlearning of that conditioning. And I feel like mm-hmm. I often want to 
go back and give my younger self a hug, and I'm sure a lot of us feel that way. Um, I guess also if you could say something to your younger self that might help comfort them for the future, what do you think that you might say to them? Yeah, I mean, I I guess that conditioning goes so so deep. Hey, I I think mm. I wanted to say sort of similar things as I wanted to say to my younger siblings, and and that is like it's really everything that we've kind of taken on, everything that we've kind of absorbed from media and from all that kind of stuff. It's, you need to take what serves you and and leave the rest, and mm-hmm. just you know even if you don't see representations of of yourself out there, your features and your the things that that make you special and that are passed down from your ancestors have so much value, and we need to really reject, you know, the ideas about ourselves, our bodies, our hair, all that kind of stuff. Um, what we, you know, how what we deserve in relationships, all those kinds of mm-hmm. things. If it doesn't serve us, and it's really, you know, affecting you really negatively it's time to, to push that away and, you know, and there are other ways to live and there are other ways to see yourself in the world. And, yeah, you have value and you're going to find those communities and you're going to find those ways in the future. So it's um Yeah, I think that's really, um, really, really special. And I think being able to find that kind of voice early on um, but even later in life, I feel like can really help support you. And I feel like I really see a lot of your um, vulnerability and power in the album. And honestly, it's just undeli- undeniable. <laughs> um, but what also really stood out to me um, is I think also how seamlessly you defy and blend genres. I feel like every beat will command your attention and you switch so wonderfully between electronic dance, punk, soul, rap, and so much more. Um, I get what I guess. Also, at what point in the production process do you, I guess, find the feel and the message of the song? And you're like, "Yep, this is this is it. I get it." Yeah. Um, I mean, the production side of stuff. Like, um, I I don't know how to do like I don't know how to make music beat wise. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been really blessed to be able to collaborate with so many incredible people on this record and just in my in my music career in general. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like, yeah, really wanting to stay true to, I guess, how I sort of started out, which is like mixing or working with so many different kinds of people is, is what I kind of wanted to bring to this record too. Um, but yeah, in terms of the message of the song, I think that is usually what hits me first. My usual catalyst for writing is, sort of having an intense reaction, usually, right? <laughs> Sometimes it's <laughs> a death or impact of a social issue, which is usually right, and so right. Um, and that sort of stops me off either just like recording some bars on my phone as I'm walking along or sitting away lyrics in one of my many millions of notebooks to get stuff down and then kind of work it through to make sure there's a decent rhyming scheme and I'm not like using the most obvious first lines that come into my head. Um, and from there, I, have, I usually reach out to producers to see if if folks want to collab and kind of wait until I find some music that, that suits the flow that I'm feeling for the track until it kind of just, like, usually it will just kind of spring into my head and I'll be like, yep, that is where that's going to fit into that. And But, yeah, working towards, I guess, like a time-sensitive goal with a whole bunch of resources 
over a structured period of time has been a completely new way of working for me, where I've yep. actually been able to have some input into the field and the direction of the music side of stuff too. Um, yeah, getting this opportunity from, from Flashboard to be able to kind of not not necessarily just sort of be like, oh, does any you know does anyone want to clap? Like, tell me any beats mm-hmm. you have. But being able to be like, I want to work with you, and I can you know I can like choose people that I want to work with, and I can kind of commission where what energy I want from the song, and be like, let's yeah. change, let's evolve this. So that's been really super new. Um, and yeah, on this record, like being able to create the feel and the vibe of all of the productions side of stuff at the same time as fleshing out the rhymes and fleshing out the message has been really, really cool. Um, and yeah, some of the tracks like Ether Witch kind of went, underwent a really big evolution in terms of the song's feel along the way in the studio from how I've been performing it live for a couple of years. But then others mm-hmm. like Utopia kind of just came out of me really raw, really hectic, really brutal. Um, like the first time I ever wrote it, I kind of just sat down and wrote it all at once and it immediately kind of went with beats that I don't need to sort of receive and how I performed it the first time years ago. Um, yeah. had so much intensity um, that when I went into the studio, I pretty much, like, there was, I had a couple of little things that pretty much knew exactly what I wanted to do and it was kind of like, yep, that's it, done, bam. Um, yeah, <laughs> that was cool. Um, but yeah, I feel like my music is extremely kind of message-focused for me. Yeah, the number one thing I want someone listening to take away from my music is the message, like the culture arms, whether it's about being a better ally, whether it's about not touching black folks' hair, whether it's about exposing greed and hypocrisy of rich people on these lands while poor people are struggling, you know, below the poverty line. Yeah, that's, that's not what I really want people to kind of absorb, first and foremost. Yeah, I think um, it sounds like a really cathartic and really collaborative process. Um, are you also <laughs> are you also one of those people that will have like seven thousand voice memos in, in your yes, phone? Very much so. Yeah. I have yeah. ADHD so like I do not have a working memory basically. So <laughs> written down on some like yeah, that's why I have so many notebooks everywhere. Like unless I get it down straight away, it's never coming back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like I have um, <laughs> kind of similar. Like, I'll have maybe, uh, like, I don't know, a million voice memos, and half of those are also just, like, random samples of <laughs> random sounds around yeah, Melbourne. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, you, you've spoken about, like, performing live and really inviting uh, your audience on an, an emotional journey um, with you, and I'm, I'm sure that would also feel really cathartic from, like, performing it and, um, you know, making it and producing it and releasing it and then now being able to perform it live and then perform it live multiple different times. Um, Could you maybe speak on what is really important to you when you're trying to, like, structure the album and the feelings that you wanted to invoke that were similar to what you wanted people to feel when you were performing live as well? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I feel like I structured this album in a super intentional way that kind of had a little bit of a rejig um, part way along. Um, because, yeah, I, I tend to have a quite a similar flow to most... I mean, it depends on sort of where I'm playing at and what the vibe is, but usually I kind of have, like, a certain... Yeah, like you said, journey that I like to kind of take the listener on. Um, and I usually start out with 
sort of a kind of like a more playful banger, like do the labor on this album. Um, and then kind of move on to, to some songs that are like, are still like really kind of catchy, really kind of like more accessible to like people mm-hmm. early on that maybe are covering really heavy topics, but like have a couple of playful moments in that give people permission to laugh. And like, even mm-hmm. when I'm performing, I sometimes just make like really cooked jokes because I feel like, I've really noticed, especially when there's a lot of white fellows in the audience, um, mm-hmm. people don't know what to do. If I'm talking about really, <laughs> like, they're sort of like, am I allowed to dance? Is this appropriate? And I, yeah, yeah. early on when I was performing, I noticed that, like, yeah, with POC audiences, with black audiences, people would be, like, going off. And with, like, mostly white audiences, people would just be standing there looking, like, really guilty and concerned. Um, follow me on Insta, that's kind of where I'm most active. 
um, where I post about shows and the record, which is at Race Rage Rhymes, R-A-C-E-R-A-C-E-R-H-Y-M-E-S. Um, on Facebook, which I'm quite bad at posting on, which is just Race Rage, all one word. And, yeah, you can check, check me out live. I'm going to be playing um, my show with Flashboard, Flashboard Melbourne on my Facebook the venue is still to be confirmed. And my IRL launch um, is going to be at Cafe Gummo and Stormbury on April 17th at 7pm. Um, and yeah, you can also buy my merch. I think today is the last day. I just know that you can at the Flashboard pop-up shop in, in um, Little Collins Street in the city. Um, yeah. <laughs> and my live listening party kind of had a bit of an issue with, with sound stuff. So to keep an eye out on my... Um, Insta, I'm going to be kind of having a redo. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, amazing. Thank you so much. I'm just jumping in quickly to say we should probably head to a track, hey? Awesome. Thanks yeah. for having me. Thank you so much for coming on, and thanks so much, Inez. No worries. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Yes, bye. So now we're going to head to Race Rage's uh, Black Medusa. This is the title track from their new album. Don't fuck. 
threat encroaching quivers between fight, flight, freeze. Yet another make me pray. Mouthwash strikes you to your knees. And then I touch my daddy's dress in a bank queue. Pop rings her pants through my curls when I ain't you. Strangers pat my coil crown, guff is like wool. I wonder four fucking times, got those hands full. Self protection stuff in time. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And that was Black Medusa, the title track of Race Rage's new album, Go Get It on Bandcamp. And now we'll go to Malika. Thank you, Priya. Um, we are now jumping into an interview with registered nurse Emma, who is the COVID testing coordinator at CoHealth. And they are joining us this morning to, to talk a bit more about um, testing centres and making rapid antigen tests. Uh, more freely available. Morning, Emma. Thanks for joining us today. Morning. Thank you for having me. No, very, very excited to have you on this morning. So I guess just jumping right into it, um, could you tell us a bit more about, um, briefly, what testing sites CoHealth is currently running and what are some of the key barriers for people in getting tested at the moment? Yeah, of course. Um, so CoHealth is a not-for-profit community health organisation. At the moment, we're running a few centres. So we're at the Melbourne Town Hall at the moment. We're at Carlton on Bouverie Street. We have a clinic in Collingwood and a clinic in West Footscray. And we also have GP respiratory clinics at Laverton. And we've just opened one as well at West Footscray and at West Melbourne. Um, so we're across the north and the west a little bit and in the CPD. Um the barriers for getting testing, um, at the moment, I think with the current rat rollout, finances are a big barrier. Um, yeah. We also are finding that the, the advice is just changing so often. Um, and I don't think that it's very easy to access the advice or to understand the advice or, you know, who's eligible and who's not. It's not very clear for people. Um, so that makes it very difficult for people from cold communities who don't have English as a first language. Um yeah, so those, I think, are our big barriers at the moment. Yeah, thank you for sharing a bit more about that. And I guess moving on to the all-important topic that's on everyone's mind at the moment, the rapid <laughs> antigen test. <laughs> so could you share a bit more about co-health position on the rapid antigen test, um, especially from an accessibility point of view? Because I know that CoHealth recently joined an alliance of health and social support organisations to call on the federal government to make rapid antigen tests free for all. Yes, we did. So on Monday, CoHealth joined that alliance. um, And yeah, uh, CoHealth believes that all rapid antigen tests should be free for all people and accessible. Um, We don't believe that it should be only available to people who have pension cards or who can get to certain pharmacies. it's just, it's not an equitable way to distribute rats, to be honest. Um, and so, yeah, we did join that alliance because um, the current model, um, it's all about private retail sales to individuals and to businesses. Um, and that just means that finance is involved. So you need to have money to be able to purchase rat tests or you are able to access a small supply if you do have certain cards with you, which is okay, but it's not enough. Um, and, you know, you could rock up to a pharmacy and they don't have it or, you know, not everyone has a phone, not everyone has internet. Um, it's under the assumption that everyone has all of these things ready to go and that they can just find a pharmacy very easily. Um, so it's just, it's not accessible. Um, and that's mm. what the Alliance was about. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, we we really do think that it just leaves everyone vulnerable. And um, so if if not everyone has access and not everyone can get tested and it's not easy, it's not available, it just leaves absolutely everyone at risk in the community and it's yeah, it we all we all need to be able to get tested. We all need to be able to find it and we all need to be able to keep the spread contained in our community safe and um, not just people who can afford it. Mm-hmm. And I guess you touched on a really important point of like we, we might not all have the finances or we might not have a car to drive to our nearest pharmacy when we're unwell and rapidly, like urgently need to get a test yeah. to make sure that we can keep our families and communities safe. And any comments on the federal government making the rapid antigen test mm-hmm. as a tax deductible option rather than free? Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, it's an interesting it's an interesting option um, because you know that's that's great for people who have you know enough income and are claiming their tax and and doing everything and they, you know maybe they have an accountant helping them and they can they can put that in and that's fine. Um, but that really tailors to only one part of the community and it's, yeah. and it's not often the vulnerable. It's not often the people who do all these things who have. Yeah, it's just, it's not quite suitable. It's not suitable for purpose. Mm. Yeah, it really sounds like a lot of these initiatives are tailored to people that have access to resources and information and finances, mm. um, and there needs to be an urgent push towards making it more readily available to people who are um, in real need of rapid engine tests at the moment especially. And I guess as we wrap up for today's interview um just if people mm-hmm. did want to access support from co-health what's the best way to find out information about the services that co-health offer is that on your mm-hmm. instagram or website what's the best way yeah um absolutely anything you can go onto our website you can give us a call um you can go onto our instagram we have different social media platforms anything yeah. that you can access get in contact with us um, and if we yeah. don't know we'll direct you to someone who does know um mm-hmm. but we have a vast range of services. Um, everything is available to absolutely anyone, regardless of your your race, your background, your language barriers, anything. We have lots of peer work for. So, yep, everyone is welcome. Come through, um, either in person as well, if you are struggling and you don't have a phone. Come to one of our okay. centres and we can help you. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Emma, and giving us a bit of an update on the current situation when it comes to accessibility for rapid antigen tests. No problem. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And you're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And that was an interview Malika just did with registered nurse Emma, who's a COVID testing coordinator at CoHealth, uh, speaking about access to rapid antigen tests and also testing in general. Um, shall we do a very quick rundown before we wrap up? Let's do it. All right. So to start off with, I caught up with writer and comedian Caitlin Blyce to hear more about her lived experience and the lived experiences of people with myalgic encephalomyelitis or chronic fatigue syndrome. I really encourage people to listen back to that very important interview and hopefully we'll play it in full soon. Absolutely. And then we spoke with Dan Hogan, a working class writer and public school teacher about the religious discrimination bill, the public discourse um, on that bill and why private schools should be abolished. And then afterwards, uh, Nasser Mashni, Vice President of the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network and co-presenter of Palestine Remembered on 3CR, spoke with us about their case against the Australian government following official comments made in support of Israel last year. And then Race Rage, a.k.a. Minnie Miller, joined us to discuss their debut album, Black Medusa. 
And uh, we also heard the title track from that album, which was fantastic. I encourage people to go find it on Bandcamp. And finally, of course, we heard from Emma, the COVID-19 testing coordinator at CoHealth. And uh, they spoke with us about responses to the pandemic in terms of testing and also access to rapid antigen tests. Um, Before we, we wrap oh, up, yeah, Priya, I was just thinking, could you just tell us about that um prize that you could win if you subscribe one that more time correct you can win a prize breakfast subscriber giveaway so renew or join up as a new 3cr subscriber this week and you go into the running for a hamper created by living coco who are supporters of community owned and run media so this is bespoke and organic cacao products from the samoan islands and you can support them and 3cr at the same time by calling 94198377 that's 94198377 or renewing or signing up for your membership online at 3cr.org.au. Awesome. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Yes, absolutely. We can't tell you enough. Subscribe to 3CR, become a part of our community, and uh, you get a bit of a say in what we do at the station in terms of, yeah, becoming a a voting member. And, um, you know, just be a part of an amazing community. Support Radical Radio. Do it. I know. I, I just Look, I just love 3CR, and I think everybody should sign up. So, you know... Get amongst it. All right. Well, we will catch you next week on Thursday Morning Breakfast. Thanks so much for sticking with us today. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.